This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hi, Steve Denyer here. Now, before we get started with tonight's edition of My Pride Playlist, I'd just like to warn you that some topics discussed could potentially be upsetting or triggering for some listeners. And if this isn't for you, please feel free to tune in to one of our other sister Virgin Radio stations on DAB or on the Virgin Radio UK app. This Come on. is Virgin Radio Pride. Welcome to my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Denyer and my first guest tonight, what can I say, Lord Michael Cashman, actor, British politician and LGBTQ plus activist. Um, first question, can I call you Michael? You can, otherwise I'll think you're the tax man. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome along. It's great to meet you. And you're a wonderful first guest for this because I have so much that I need to talk to you about. And I've read the book and so many stories come out of the book as well. Can we start with uh, the first song we've got down here, which is, I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I heard Eartha Kitt. <laughs> well, you see, I grew up in the... East End of London, which we can see here from the studio, right on that river. Um, my dad was a docker. My mum was a, a very proud office cleaner. And uh, and as soon as I was born, my dad put my name down at the dock labour board so that when I left school, I'd go into the docks. Um, and if my mum had had daughters, they would have followed her into office cleaning. Well, she must have known I was gay at a very early age because she took me office cleaning. And... and, <laughs> and, and, and and I knew I was different. At an early, early age, I was different from the other bo- other boys. And some awful things happened to me that I won't go into here. And I knew uh, that I had to put on a mask that, so that people wouldn't realise I was one of them. Um, I remember my mum said to me, she said, come and dance for me and your Auntie Eileen. And I, they put a Paul Anker record on the, on the gramophone. <laughs> And it was the only posh thing we had. And I danced and jigged and my legs were up in the air like the Tiller girls from the Sunday night at the London Palladium. And they were laughing and I heard my mum say, I think he's one of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they knew I was different. And and so I, I decided that I'd make people amused and laugh. And, uh, and I used to do an impersonation of Eartha Kitt and... When I failed my 11 plus and went to this school where I, it was like a war zone, secondary modern school, and I, I knew I was different from the other boys. I know I knew I fancied them. Um, and so I went around with the girls and we went to a, this drama class and Mr. Everett said to me, he said, Cashman, he said, I, I believe you impersonate the teachers. Oh, no, 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 sir, not me, sir. <laughs> he said, I believe you impersonate Eartha Kitt. And I went, yes, sir. And I did the impersonation of Eartha Kitt at the end of term school show. Uh-huh. Uh, they brought me on on the back of a chair, uh, did my number. My mum evidently stood up and went, here, 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 he's got my cocktail dress on. <laughs> and they loved it. And there was a, uh, a talent scout in the audience of the school show. Uh, and three weeks later, because of Eartha Kitt, I, I auditioned for Oliver at the age of 11. Uh, and went into Oliver um, in 1963 and eventually played Oliver and my life changed. I was somewhere where I could belong and it was 
Incredible. You're listening to my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Daniel. My first guest tonight is Lord Michael Cashman. That was his first uh, track choice, Earth of Care. I'm not going to go on until you do that impression. You knew I was going to ask. I want an old-fashioned house. <laughs> And an old-fashioned fence. That's all you get from me. I told you it was going to be good. <laughs> now, on to um, very, very famous lady, Scylla Black. Mm. Um, the next song on your list on Virgin Radio Pride's playlist, You're My World. Tell me more about this. This this song just reminds me of 1966-67. The West End of London. I was a young actor. I, I, I was then 16. And I came back from doing a tour, a national tour, and this uh, friend in Peter Pan, he said, uh, he said, well, when, when we get back to London, he said, I'll take you to some good clubs, he says. So we met up and he took me, we went down Berwick Street and Ian knew all the names of the working women and they were waving back and we turned into Darbley Street and he rung this bell and we went down the stairs uh, and, and I eventually in that club where I saw boys of my own age dancing cheek to cheek I thought I'd died and gone to heaven and I met this amazing man who was um, eight years older than me um, and uh, I fell in love with him and uh, he tried to get away and I tracked him down and, <laughs> uh, and he was a DJ at Tiffany's on Shaftesbury Avenue and I used to go there at the end of the night, and the last song he always played was Scylla Black's You're My World. And I used to be right at the end of the ballroom, and he used to make this declaration of love from a 24-year-old man to a 16-year-old boy by saying, Scylla Black's You're My World. And that was his song to me, and interestingly enough, it's a song that later in our nine-year relationship um, reminds me of something that I witnessed that brought about for me. My career was then going amazingly well. Films with David Hemmings and Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Caine. And it, I just experienced the most cathartic experience and changed careers. Um, and so it reminds me of that hedonistic wonderful liberating period and also Steve of the first time that I actually found someone who emotionally and physically made love to me and before that there'd been uh, older men using their power uh, and abuse and you get to deal with that uh, but this was suddenly where emotionally uh I felt I was, I, I, I was loved. You're listening to my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Dania. I'm joined by Michael Cashman, and that was another one of his songs, Scylla Black. You were just telling me a moment ago that uh, you met this guy. He was in his 20s. You were, you were just 16, beneath the age of consent. I mean, how did that work? We, oh. we both were, because in uh, 60... Six early 67 when we met 
uh, it wasn't until July 1967 that they brought in the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality uh, and an age of consent under very strict circumstances of 21. So you're right, even when the age of con- the uh, age of consent of 21 came in, uh, he and I were were still illegal. And and when I moved in with him, he said there always have there has to be two bedrooms mm-hmm. or two beds. And if anyone asks me, you're my cousin. And something really, uh, a heterosexual guy um, decided that he would uh, rape me and thankfully I managed to talk him out of most of it. Um, But we couldn't go to the police because we knew we would be the investigation that they pursued, Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't believe uh, two queers against a, a, a married heterosexual man. And... That was the kind of things you had to live with. It was a dark, dark period. The, they may have uh, brought in an, eight, uh, an age of consent of 21, but the arrests went up. People, you know, won't know that you could be arrested for uh, picking up the... just trying to pick somebody up, chatting somebody up on the, on the street, mm-hmm. uh, holding hands, walking down the street, uh, behaviour likely to breach, uh, you know, cause a breach of the peace. Um, no equality, no protections whatsoever. I'm just trying to get through into my head, you know, when this Cilla Black song, when when this was big for you, just how a night out in kind of Soho and trying to be gay, how, how that played out. Um, you know, like you said, ringing a doorbell, giving a code to get into a venue. I mean, most people listening to this radio station would never have experienced any of that. It sounds as frightening as it was exciting. It, that's exactly what it was and because it was uh frightening uh the excitement of being out being in this closed world where even when you you had to keep an eye on somebody who might come in through the door mistakenly from your other world from your day world and the the brilliant nights you had had to be left with the night if you exchange phone numbers you had to be very careful where you put them um, but, but but again, there, there was women who looked after you in Darbley Street. If if someone was overzealous in their attraction towards you, some of the older men would, would uh, pursue you like a donkey in search of a carrot. <laughs> uh, and you just went over and you solicited the help of a couple of the lesbians from the subway, and they loved nothing better than be- beating up an overzealous older gay man. Some things never change. <laughs> um, but, but there was... Um, you know, people talk about the swinging 60s. Actually, it was the swinging 70s because the 60s created the ground swell. Music had changed. Um, you know, the, uh, the Beatles uh, had, had taken over. Pat Boone had gone. You had the, the Rolling Stones, uh, Procol Harlem. Just amazing, amazing changes all around you. Carnaby Street. Bursting out, uh, uh, Kings Road, Chelsea, where there were a couple of gay bars, uh, where again you had to be in your back room, uh, nothing overt, mm-hmm. and if you were uh, too overt, you would be asked to leave. That should take me on nicely to the next song. I'm guessing around that era, Barry Manilow um, and, and Mandy. What's the importance of this song to you? Well, the song, you see, I, I escaped. Barry, really. I came to know Barry through 
uh, the love of my life, Paul, Paul Cottingham. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the Barry Manilow fan club uh, in England used to say, uh, if you can't get to hear Barry sing, then try and hear Paul Cottingham sing Mandy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, when, um, and when I met him, he was in a close harmony group up in Scarborough. Uh, and that that was where I met him, and it was wasn't long before I ser I was serenaded with Mandy. But when I became uh, a member of the European Parliament, I used to have to go off doing certain trips, and we went to um, uh, Papua New Guinea, where homosexuality is illegal. And Paul always, Paul always said at his expense, "Where you go in the world, I'll come with you." So the head of protocol phoned our, our room and he said, he said, Michael, it's Eamon. He said, I've I had a request from the Prime Minister's office. They want Mrs Cashman to go on the, <laughs> uh, on the spouses' trips. I said, what did you say, Eamon? He said, he said, well, that's very interesting. He said, because Mrs Cashman is actually Mr Paul Cottingham. <laughs> and, I said, and he said, and they definitely want him. And Paul went on with the other spouses. There was Barbara from the Prime Minister's office, his PA. Uh, and on the final day... He serenaded them all on this battleship, singing not, oh, Mandy, but, oh, Barbara. <laughs> oh, and, and it brings back just wonderful, wonderful memories of that, that incredible man. It's my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Denyer. My first guest is Michael Cashman, Lord Michael Cashman, and we just spoke about your your partner Paul, who played such a massive part in your life, and indeed he's mentioned so many times in your book as well. I want to go right the way back to when it all started because, and I love this, Barbara Windsor was involved. Is that right? Absolutely right. Um, I was up in Scarborough, uh, and uh, I was uh, I'd, I'd written a play, and Alan Akebourne. Uh, the great playwright was also directing it, so I was up there, and Barbara was in town, and uh, and at the end of the season, she decided to uh, throw a party for all the, all, all, all the artists, and uh, uh, and so and, and and the invitation. I've still got the invitation. Wow! Uh, and it says you are uh, Bar Miss Barbara Windsor invites you to her grand soiree, and it was called a grand soiree because she held it at the Grand Hotel. I see, and. Um, and so I turned up, um, and uh, and there was Barbara, and she said, "Ah, darling, I see you, darling. Oh, Barbara, who I love, love, love." And um, and and she turned round to Paul and said, uh, "Would you take care of Michael for me, please?" And then she gave me this little wink, yeah. <laughs> and, and I thought, "No, young, straight." He was nineteen. I was thirty-two. I thought, "Yeah, young, straight." Um, uh, Buckling's red coat. He won't be interested in me. Um, and <laughs> that night, when he went off and performed his song, and, uh, uh, and and came back, was having a pint with me. And suddenly, this woman jumped in front of us, and she went, "Here, this is my red coat." And grabbed hold of him and dragged him onto the dance floor. Um, and but the song that he sang that night, ninth uh, of September. 1983 only you um, and every time I hear it I hear his voice because he had a wonderful voice um, and uh, and it strikes beautiful memories about someone I met who had more patience and tenacity 
because I thought if you loved me, you had to hurt me. That was the history. Um, and he, he wanted more than that. Uh, and he, you know, he wasn't out. I was fairly out. Um, and, and, and he gave up everything to come and join me in London and ultimately gave up his career. And we had a difficult relationship, the, the age difference, but more, more so, Steve, because I, I spent the first two years pushing him away, thinking, no, you can't love me. You, you don't hurt me. You, you haven't left me. Um, and, uh, and, then, and we then developed the relationship and we had um, 31 years together. I went over to him in the, the middle of his 50th birthday party <clears throat> in 2014. And I said, I said, we've been together 31 years. And he went, 31 years? He said, that's longer than my inside leg. Go away. <laughs> and I walked away and I looked at this man who'd never been a boy, who was there at the centre of my life. And uh, I can see it now. Magical. He changed me. Changed me for, hopefully, the lyrics of Wicked changed me for good now michael is it time for some abba oh i've actually been looking forward to it i think this is a great opportunity well tell me about this song well, i mean this song's legendary isn't it well it's legendary because it sums up that period and uh, and it sums up for me again going back to the scene as it was then there was a man called tricky dicky so what year are we talking here we're, we're talking we're, we're about i think it must be about 84 85 so just before just before you got into east end yes and uh, and we used to go to uh, Pigeon's uh, uh, pub on Romford Road in Stratford and Tricky Dicky used to rent rooms above pubs where you would he'd have a, a gay disco. And we used to... It, 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 we were like gypsies. We followed him round London and, and we would go there and suddenly ABBA would come on and the poppers would be in the air and the shirts would be ripped off and we'd be dancing like ballet dancers in bova boots and and then the image uh, of then leaving that club and Paul and I walking home bag of chips probably curry sauce on, nice. the, on the top he was he always said to me uh, towards the end of his life he said uh, he said you introduced me to um uh, to musical theater uh, he, I said yeah yeah he said, and I introduced you to onion rings. <laughs> and he did. He did in Scarborough. So that so it, it epitomises the, the fact that we were still behind darkened windows. And this was in mid-80s. Mid-80s. And, and equally, AIDS and HIV was, wasn't being talked about uh, as widely. Um, and, and that shadow over the bars and the clubs was lurking. And so... When you went out on those nights, uh, you, you went out to forget. And sometimes in the forgetting, people took chances that they shouldn't have done. Um, and it brings back those friends that I danced with who then danced with death.
You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Steve Daniel with you on my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm joined by such a special guest tonight. It's Lord Michael Cashman. And from ABBA, Dancing Queen, uh, to quite a, a change in subject. We touched on this a moment ago when you said about the arrival of HIV and AIDS in the 80s. Of course, anyone who's seen It's a Sin recently has revisited that whole era. But what what was it like? I mean, I can only imagine how frightening it was in the beginning um, with this issue just creeping upon you and you weren't quite sure, you know, what to do to avoid it. And there was kind of all the different reports in the press. I mean, what was it like? Uh, it felt frightening. But interestingly, I think as... as Gay men, we lived with so many fears, uh, so many threats, physical, uh, 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 and so dealing with another, which was probably our reason for kind of trying to edge it sideways, dealing with another was just what life threw at you because people must, they must be reminded that you could lose your housing, you could be sacked, you could, people could just ask you to leave the restaurant. Mm -hmm. the, the, ban you from a pub. There was absolutely no prevention of discrimination. So when AIDS and HIV came along, I think there was the early denial. Um, and Paul and I then had a, an open relationship and then very quickly we had to redefine that um, because the first primary part of the relationship was that you do not put one another uh, at threat. As my old friend Ken Parry, Ken, no longer with us sadly, wonderful camp actor, used to say, now, you see, dear, I've come into my own now. As you know, I'm very good on the phone. He said to her, I got a lot of phone sex. It's the safest sex ever, dear, and you don't have to buy them a coffee afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, 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 but seriously, that you had to think of other ways of having sex um, and, uh, and knowing that if you didn't have protected sex, a bit like the pandemic, you put yourself, if you didn't protect yourself, you put yourself at risk and you put others. But then it was a death sentence. Mm. And I remember, you know, I, I now test, I do the finger test, do the home test. But I remember going for a test and uh, going back, you had to wait two weeks. Wow. Um, of that uncertainty. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, uh, I was I was negative. And I had the test because I knew I, I, I might have to go to hospital and I wanted to forearm myself with the information. Um, but I think the shadow really cast its gloom when we saw our friends die. That's when you could no longer uh, deny it or evade it. Did you lose lots of friends? Yes, I, I, I didn't lose lots. I, 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 less, I lost... Uh, some good friends. Um, but when I was in EastEnders, I used to go off and support the, you know, I'd do benefits and I'd support the hospices. And I remember going to Kensington and uh, Chelsea, as it then was. Uh, and um, and I, because I used to do a, a pop in and they'd say, look, we've got a celebrity popping in. We won't tell you who. Uh, are you up for a, a visit? And they go, yes. Or they go, no. And I opened this door to a, a, a solo. Uh, room and there was a friend of mine in bed Ashley um, and he hadn't told any of his friends um, 
and he died about six weeks later. He went home to his parents. And this wonderful, ordinary boy died the most extraordinary death. You are listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. So I've been waiting to talk to you about, and you know what's coming here, EastEnders, that kiss, it happened um, in 1987, I think I'm right in saying that. I was nine years old at junior school, and I remember the other kids talking about EastEnders and this kiss and talking about it in very kind of negative terms. I mean, it was in the press, wasn't it? That headline East Benders. I remember feeling quite wary and frightened to watch it because I didn't know what the reaction was going to be, but I also thought of you and thought, gosh, how how extremely brave to be doing this in the 80s on national television. It being in the show uh, was pretty controversial because even before I appeared, we had the East Benders headline mm. about me going in. There were questions in Parliament because uh, they were putting a homosexual in a family show, so i.e. homosexuals and families not shouldn't be together, they are not together, absolute rubbish, we know. Um, uh, and because AIDS and HIV was, quote, swirling around the country uh, like a gay plague. Uh, so being in the show, there was a lot of opposition, external opposition, uh, but we just got on with it, and it was very clever because... It was about three months in, so you kind of knew him through the people that were that would have been there the ten months before him, like Pauline Fowler, Doc Cotton. Mm-hmm. Um, so they liked him through that and Den and Angie. Um, and so when we did that kiss, uh, Gary Hales, who played my partner Barry in it, and and he was below the age of con- consent in the show. Really? Okay, yep. right. Yep. Uh, very, very uh, clever. And uh, we just, it, it was a, a peck on the on the forehead. To begin with, and that got all the headlines, didn't it? The peck. Yeah. Uh, and and they went berserk. The tabloids went mad. The moral campaign of the time, uh, so-called, Mary Whitehouse, uh, wrote a, a letter saying that these characters should be taken off. Young children are watching this show. And, and Julia Smith, who produced the show, just took hold of the letter, showed it to me. She said, I'm going to have that framed and put up, <laughs> put up with all, all her other ones. Brilliant. Um, but it was wonderful. We just got on with it. But the tabloids made our life hell. They outed Paul to his family, centre pages of the News of the World, and I will always remember this, Secret Gay Love of AIDS Scare EastEnder because in the show, Barry was worried that he might have AIDS. Paul was my secret love and we lived in the East End. And in the article, they told people where we lived. And so Paul had his family on that morning. Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? And initially he denied it. And then that afternoon, uh, he went off to uh, go back on tour with the Rocky Horror Show and a brick came through the window. Wow. And uh, and I felt an interesting mix. I felt anger and I felt real strength. And I thought, if you think you can beat me with this, you don't know me. And, and Steve, I always say, and it's not a joke, that when something like that happens, metaphorically, 
you join hands down thousands of generations who've been stigmatised or attacked for no other reason than they're different and you become stronger. Um, but I'll give you a, a, a little... I got on a train, a Northern Line train, because I, I used to love... It's the easiest way to get around London, um, uh, on, on the tube. And I got on the train, and at King's Cross, the football fans just swamped in. And I heard them going, it's Colin, Colin, <laughs> it's Colin, Colin, and the character, right? And then I suddenly lifted my head up, and they went, Colin, give us a kiss, Colin, give us a kiss. <laughs> and, and I felt terrified, I felt elated, and when I got off at the next station, which I think might have been Euston, and I walked through, it was like the parting of the Red Sea, walked through all of these uh, football fans, and as I walked past one, he went, AIDS carrier and time absolutely stood still and I thought is this it is this when I get that smack in the face that smash round the back of the neck and then somebody said I'll oh, leave it out mate and on they continued wow um, but as, as an actor because of the way we turn around the show you didn't have time to, to worry you had to get on with it and get on with it, you did. My Pride Playlist. Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Denyer. My guest tonight, Lord Michael Cashman. Uh, we just discussed the, the kiss in EastEnders uh, around that time of kind of the late 80s. It must have been quite something for you to have been around, you know, spearheading the whole movement when all of this was going on. My God, I'm proud of that because it was during the time on the show that the government, the Thatcher government, the Conservative government, introduced the first ever anti-lesbian and gay law uh, in a hundred years. And that's when I knew I had to be on that campaign, on that march against it. Mm -hmm. And it changed my life. And it was June Brown, interestingly enough, who got me the time off because I was, I was rehearsing that Saturday morning and I was doing my scenes with her. I said, June, I need time off. Okay, Mike, what's that, dear? <laughs> I, said, I love the impression. <laughs> Get the audio book for more impressions <laughs> like this. It's so good. <laughs> and she got me time off and she said, now, Mike, don't get arrested, dear. <laughs> um, and um, and I went off on that march. Uh, that night, uh, my dad turned around to my mum. He said, because I was on the news, and he went, I don't mind him being gay, he said, but does he have to go on the news about it? <laughs> um, and that set me on my political path. I didn't know at the time. It set, certainly set me on my activist path uh, because out of that, uh, we lost the battle against what was called Section 28, that anti-lesbian, gay, bisexual law, and we decided to set up an organisation to campaign for equality, and that was and is Stonewall. Mm-hmm. What a, what a decade, what a decade the 80s were, because after the, the whole AIDS thing, to then it was the final kick in the teeth, really, wasn't it, Section yeah. 28? Yeah. You start the, the 80s, seemed to be so kind of free and easy and lots of hope that it could be the start of something new, and then you end by 89 in the depths of despair and depression because of, Stone, uh, because of uh, Section 28. But, Steve, arguably, the early 80s, uh, we were bought off. We... we we believed we were okay because we had our pubs, our bars, our clubs, our saunas, 
uh, and we were allowed to get on under cover of darkness with our lives. So we were were commercially commercially anaesthetised into believing we were okay, and it was section it was AIDS and HIV, Mm -hmm. and then section twenty eight. The fact that you had a community that was that was suffering with AIDS and HIV and the and and the illnesses related with it, and you then hit them with a hammer blow to instead of supporting them. That I think was why the reaction. The 12,000 people on the first march in London, that amazing march of 20,000 people in Manchester and around the country, Leicester, Cardiff, the, the pushback uh, was, was big. And that links us on nicely uh, to this next song, which I suppose thinking about it is, well, this is the anthem for peace, isn't it? Yes. Over years and through generations, John Lennon's Imagine. For me, this... Again, was like a, an electric shock when I heard it. Um, reconfiguring the world against everything that you've had knocked into your head, especially me as a young a young Catholic who nearly became a priest. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, because oh, wow. they used to. My, in fact, Johnny, my eldest brother, was talking about it yesterday, mm. um, and um, and and they used to come around and and I thought, oh yeah, go off, live in a big house and. It's 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 only, it's only boys there, yeah. You know. Nice outfit, <laughs> yeah. And, I thought, and then when I went back to Mr. Kerrigan, the headmaster, because I, I just took the form home. My mum and dad signed it. They probably thought, oh, get get one out of the way, get one of our sons out of the way. Um, and uh, and so when I went back to see Mr. Kerrigan, the headmaster, I said, Mr. Kerrigan, about this monk business, and he went. <laughs> He went, here you are, Cashman. He opened the drawer. He said, there's your form. I never sent it on. Um, and I think that, no, I know, that also was about trying to belong, you know, becoming an altar boy and uh, the, the theatre, the theatrical uh, uh, aspects of it all. But, but Lennon struck me as speaking a truth. Um, you know, oh, oh, no borders, uh, uh, no heaven, only sky. Um, and for me, it's my mantra. In, in one of my uh, favourite things is to say, imagine, imagine, uh, and you separate yourself away from all the other species, and imagine you're that child, imagine you're that trans woman facing that hatred. Imagine. Now, usually it would be a toughie to follow on from that John Lennon song, but uh, you've done it nicely with your next choice, which is Sting and Fields of Gold. Well, every time I hear it, it takes me back to our civil partnership. Mm -hmm. Um, During my time with Stonewall and then when I went off to the European Parliament to become a member of the European Parliament, which I loved... Working then, it was 15 different countries working together to to achieve changes that you couldn't achieve by being on your own. That kind of uh, an idea of collective bargaining, uh, writing up brilliant laws and uh, through the accession process when countries like Romania and Bulgaria and Cyprus and others were coming in insisting that LGBT rights had to be uh, addressed. Um, and uh, and so I did a lot with Tony Blair um, uh, and his ministers around LGBT issues. 
And I, I, um, the then chief executive of Stonewall said to me, she said, I hear you're saying you're going to Downing Street to see Blair. And I said, yes. She said, I've got two things I want you to ask him. Um, so I said, OK, tell me. So one was an internal civil service change that he did. And the other one was about civil partnerships. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I sat down in, in, uh, on the terrace with Tony and, and Sally Morgan, his then uh, uh, chief political secretary. And I said, um, <clears throat> there's been work done uh, internally on civil partnerships. I said, and um, Tony, uh, you know, it, it's really important that we bring this forward. Blah, blah, blah. I said, would you bring it forward in the next Queen's speech? Mm-hmm. And he looked to Sally and he went, we can do that, can't we? And she went, yeah. He went, there you are. <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm ready to work harder for it. He said, you, you don't wow. have to. What else? But then Paul organised our civil partnership. By that time, he was a, a, an organiser. And uh, at the, uh, the um, Vanopolis uh, by the Clink at, at London Bridge. That's around the corner. Yeah. And, um, and when we... Sto- I mean, it, it very nearly didn't happen. And if people want the, the, the real story, the true story, they'll have to get hold of the book. Um, and, and, and there was like the, the hosts of, um, uh, or, or the creme de la creme of politics and theatre and show business and even Lily Savage. And, um, <laughs> and all the glory. And so the, the security around the place was incredible. But when I stood there uh, and we took our vows, Ian McKellen and Michelle Collins were our witnesses. And uh, Fields of Gold was sung. And I just thought, I wish my mum and dad were here to see me and Paul, who they loved, publicly declare our love for one another and our commitment. Uh, And... uh, and I never, Steve, this is absolutely honest, I, although I'd campaigned for it, I never believed it would happen in my lifetime. Another incredibly beautiful track chosen by Lord Cashman and it's Sting Fields of Gold. It's my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Danny and Michael Cashman is here with me. We were just talking about um, your civil partnership and you mentioned, was it Barbara Windsor and something involving... Your, your aunt? My aunt, one of my aunts got a bit too drunk, went over to Barbara and was pushing the phone towards Barbara, going, speak to our, speak to my governor, our governor's on the phone, and Barbara just looked, went, went forward and went, get out of my face, lady. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, I can imagine. <laughs> that was all, I mean, actually thinking of like, you, you know, that time so soon after everything that happened in the 80s, what a t- when did the tide turn as far as you know, after so we got Section Twenty Eight, then John Major after Margaret Thatcher, mm. then you know, obviously the, the Tony Blair era. When did things start to get rosier and better? They started to change with John Major, um, and again, I, I lay this out clearly in the in, in the book. When um, Ian McKellen met John Major at the National and said, uh, "Do you think I could pop along to Downing Street to talk about some social issues?" We had set up Stonewall, professional organisation, funded by uh, private money, which we got by doing endless benefits, and Cameron McIntosh brilliantly supported us. Um, And Ian went off to see John Major at Number 10 Downing Street, and it it happened to be covered 
um, by the media because Edith Cresson, the Prime Minister of France then, was visiting. And she had said, 25% um, of, uh, uh, of all Englishmen, uh, they are homosexuals. And we don't, didn't know whether she meant 25% of their body or 25% of the male population. <laughs> and the fact that here was a famous gay actor coming out of Number 10 Downing Street, I think they thought it was a nice marrying of two stories. And John Major promised that he would look at what we were doing, that uh, the civil service would work with Stonewall, uh, and he brought forward a change, uh, ending the ban uh, on um, lesbians, gay, bisexual uh, and trans people serving in the diplomatic service and in the intelligence service. And very recently, I was so proud to see uh, Richard Moore, uh, the new head of MI6, C, as, as he's called, um, issue a public apology mm. to those LGBT people. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and, th and then Stonewall and others, we continued our work, but I think it was Section 28 where the government lost the argument but forced the bill through mm -hmm. and then working with all of the political parties, uh, making the case for change and, uh, and the Blair government delivered on it uh, with sometimes fierce uh, opposition, uh, opposition in the House of Lords and it's interestingly, interesting in that how times change when the Equal Marriage Act came up, more Conservative MPs voted against it uh, in the House of Commons, uh, but in the House of Lords uh, there was a majority yes. of Conservative peers who voted for it. Um, but it was the equal age of consent uh, setting the, the, that precedent for equality. But there were battles that came along. Uh, uh, one that I had to intervene on, on ending the ban on gays in the military, mm -hmm. uh, which we, we did. Um, and then the others around uh, adoption, fostering, uh, non-discrimination in, in the workplace. Uh, and there was equally opposition to civil partnerships. It's true to say that in every instance, there's always been opposition to uh, progressive movements, but you, like we are still trying to do with trans, you win the arguments, you deal with the myths that people create, um, and um, and you take those myths on, on the basis of we should all be equal, and we should all certainly have the equal protection of the law. We've come so far, haven't we? Um, but it can always go back, and I sense there are movements within government at the moment. Uh, I'm not at ease with uh, the Equalities Minister, uh, Liz Truss. She said some uh, worrying things around conversion therapy and that they will have uh, possible opt-outs for religious organisations and professionals. As soon as you have loopholes, you have conversion therapy, which destroys lives. Uh, I'm equally worried about the approach to uh, relationship and sex education in schools um, and, and and allowing uh, uh, and, and there's, there's, there's other things which uh, cause me real concern and that leads me on very nicely to the, the question that I've been dying to ask you and that is why we should still have pride, why it's important to still have pride, to mark pride this is exactly what you're saying isn't it yes, well it, pride is I remember the first Pride I went on in 1979 and there were 500 people. 
Brilliant. We all had something in common. Where was it? That was at Marble Arch. We walked along uh, Oxford Street shouting, we're here, we're queer, and we're not going shopping, but some of us did. (laughs) Um, And the other thing we used to shout out was, two, four, six, eight, is that copper really straight? And the police, a phalanx of police on either side, and the pride marches were so small that we used to end up at the student student union in uh, the University uh, College London uh, in Mallet Street. Um, and when I see pride now, the celebration of the difference, the celebration of the ordinariness and the extraordinariness, the different religions and none, the different colours, races and the companies that we march with send a signal of the clout that the community has, the political clout. People say pride has become too commercial. Absolutely not. I knew a period where some of us had to write cheques, otherwise pride wasn't going ahead. And if people want to opt out and have a different kind of pride, I'm all... For, 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 for people doing what they want to do. But coming together, that amazing celebration and, and signalling that actually uh, we, are a, we are a force to be reckoned with. It's not only party time, it's solidarity time. Um, I, I, once, no, I, I was marching once and I said, oh, come on, let's get ahead. And I ended up between stuck between me and a, a, a Labour peer. Uh, we were stuck between uh, the S&M boys with, with their uh, <laughs> uh, their partners on leashes going along the floor yeah. uh, and a group of young so, young uh, sailors doing all, all of these semaphore things. Um, and I thought, now this is a photo that will end up on a tabloid. It, it didn't. But how brilliant to see police women and policemen the, the armed services, the, you know, the health workers, the, everyone from every aspect of life so that they cannot stereotype us anymore. We are the sons and daughters of ordinary women and men made extraordinary by society's previous preoccupation with our sex lives and by defining us solely by that. And we're much more than that. Indeed, and that leads us on really nicely uh, to this next track, which, uh, well, I mean, I always remember my first Pride experience, and uh, it was something like 95, 1995. I remember crowding into London's Finsbury Park. I had never experienced an atmosphere like it, and this is the one song that takes me back to that period we were just talking about, and uh, it's a great one. It's an uplifting one. It's the original I love you, baby. My Pride Playlist. Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Denier, and thank you for listening tonight to My Pride Playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. I've been joined tonight by Lord Michael Cashman. We've been talking loads about his book. It's called One of Them. Um, I said to you earlier, if you can, just get the audio version because you get all of Michael's brilliant impressions um but i've got to talk and i've got to touch about the most moving part of the book and this bit really really got to me the brutal honesty uh, regarding you know those final days with your partner paul and just thinking about the relationship as a whole is there is there one song that 
will beautifully sum up that whole period of your life? I think... I think it would be, strangely enough, um, something from Foray's Requiem. Um, in Paradisum. Because I discovered that, this piece, and was so moved by it when I was a young actor in a BBC show, and they used it as um, uh, some background music. Mm. And then when I left EastEnders, and I, I was asked if I wanted to do a documentary for the BBC, and I did a documentary based on uh, this about 1991, Discrimination Against Lesbians and Gay Men and Where It Came From, and I ended it uh, with the backdrop of the House of, House of Commons and the House of Laws behind me. And I said, in the end, the responsibility for the, uh, the discrimination uh, and the hatred uh, going on rests in the House of Lords, uh, in, the, in, in the Palace of Westminster behind me. And they panned, and underneath it, they just started. We, we decided we'd have forays uh, in Paradisum. And it's got a beautiful, simple start to it. Um, and Paul and I used to do the cleaning to it every, <laughs> every, every, every Sunday morning. Um, yeah. So it would be this. Uh, to be loved um, is to be changed. And it's the only thing that sustains you in the end. You can get through anything. It's the only thing. And writing the book and looking back on what happened in the end, do you feel ang angry or cheated? Now, how are you now? I, f I feel... No, I don't feel angry or cheated. Um, we, we had 31 years. It's uh, incredible. And they were 31 uh, mixed, but brilliant years. And what, I, what I'm frustrated about is that I always thought it would be me that would, um, that would die first. Really? So, yeah, that was, my, that, that was in the back of my head. The older man worked, I used to work out all the finances so that when I went, he'd, he'd, he'd be okay. Um, I used to work out the finances and, and, and his favourite expression was spend it <laughs> um, and and when he he died and I was with him for his last breath I just and I still do I, I struggle with the absence he's with me I don't believe in in, in uh, God I don't believe in, in those things sometimes I, I, I wish I did um, but he's with me and I, uh, I'm changed because of him but it's that physical absence um, but he apart from uh, one bad misdiagnosis he received the most amazing care and support and he said he said you know what we know I've got to cope with my approaching death he said, it's not going to govern how I live now. He said, but some people leave home in the morning, uh, expecting to go home and apologise for the row that they've just had. Mm -hmm. He said, we know. And we use that time very, not preciously, but very well. We judged everything well. And even uh, 
you know, shortly before he died, he was saying to the consultant, can't we go on this cruise to the, <laughs> the Atlantic Cup? And, you know, of course, Steve, I know why he was saying that. He, he wanted to escape. And in the end, he did. He escaped. Uh, and there's a funny thing, you know, living where I do on the river, get wonderful sunsets. And I see him in the ordinariness and the extraordinariness of the day. But I particularly see him when I look at the moon. Um, and um, this morning I woke up and there's that half moon in the sky. At yes. Six o'clock and, th- and I go, hiya, Paul. He's there. Yeah. He's all right. And you've got to read the book because, um, you know, it's, it's there. It's brutal. It's honest. I kind of thought when I read, when I got towards the end of the book, I thought, was it difficult or was it cathartic to write or was it both? It it was both because um, you have to you have to let go of your emotions. You have to allow the truth to come forward, um, and uh, and the writing therefore dictates itself. And I have brilliant recall. Some of the earliest uh, thing, uh, earlier part of my life, I, I I kept diaries and I kept notes and certain points towards uh, you know in, I, I've kept notes and diaries but I have brilliant recall and when we were sat on the bed and I said to him you do realise I love you and he said I do now and he'd just been told that he didn't have uh, much longer to live and he, he looked at me and he said and this was the greatest gift he could have given me he looked at me and he said well Babs now we know now we know and I'm ready and that took away all of my fears about what he was fearing he gave me that gift that he was ready to go Lord Michael Cashman Michael thank you so much I want to I've got one final question um, that I want to put to you about our future what have we got left to do now oh well, <laughs> we've got to end the opposition from, from those who want to take away our rights. Um, we've got to create, again, the universality of human rights so that when we travel, our rights travel with us. We've got to go back to that John Lennon concept of imagine what it's like if you're born in Uganda or born in a part of the United Kingdom where coming out you could lose still your family use the support of your religion that matters to you um uh, and we've got to stand shoulder to shoulder with other people who because of perceived differences um are discriminated against and that way all of us form the majority we've got a lot to do uh, but my big mantra is We achieve together, only together. Thank you so much for being part of this today. And can I just reiterate your book, one of them, from Albert Square to Parliament Square. My view, you should get the audio book because you get all those impressions (laughs) and the dot cost impression. You can never do that too many times. But thank you for being here. Also, more importantly, thank you for everything you've done for us over the years. Thank you. And what I've done over the years, I've been fortunate to be able to do... um, and uh, and I, I didn't do it. It was started thousands of generations ago. That's why we've got to protect it.